But I want to encourage you now to turn in your Bible, if you haven't already, to John chapter 19, the Gospel of John chapter 19. As Tony said, we're continuing the series in the Gospel of John. Without a doubt, we live in a visual age. Symbols, uh, icons are, are all around us, and they're important, especially as our age gets more and more digital and with all the social media that we are, we're on. Symbols have become even that much more important. And the best symbols communicate the essence of what they represent so that immediately when you look at it, you know what it's about. Take the Nike swoosh, for example. First of all, when you see the Nike swoosh, it doesn't even have to say Nike above it. Anybody in the Western world knows what that, that, that swoosh symbol is all about. And it actually well communicates the meaning of Nike, which is the Greek word for victory, and what this shoe and, and athletic apparel company is all about. It, it looks like it's striving forward. I mean, it, the Nike swoosh almost looks like someone uh, breaking the tape at the end of a race. But other symbols communicate uh, by showing us not just what they represent, but also give us a, a feel or a sense of the, of the heart, perhaps of a movement. Think about the peace symbol. There's this peace symbol, uh, but then there's that peace symbol that emerged in the 1960s, you know, the, the circle with the line and the two lines, which I discovered this week includes an N and a D for nuclear disarmament. And that was the cry for those who wanted peace in the 60s, but it's been adopted by all kinds of peace movements in the years to come, so that when you see that symbol, you think about peace, and you have the feeling of a sense of a desire for a better world. You feel it. There's an ethos there. That symbol expresses what it means. It, it, it communicates with you. And how much more so... The symbol that is known worldwide for Christianity, the cross. Anywhere you go around the world, when, if you see a cross, when people see a cross, it represents Christianity. And yet, if you went back 2,000 years and you talked to someone living in the Roman Empire and asked them what they feel and what they think when they see the symbol of a cross, first of all, they might not want to talk to you because it wouldn't be polite conversation to talk about the cross and crucifixion. But they would say that the cross symbolizes uh, utter rejection, hostility, cursedness, defeat, torture. So how in the world did this symbol for the instrument of torture and hostility and death and defeat become a symbol of peace and reconciliation, a symbol of boundless love and triumph. That, friends, is what our text this morning is all about. Our text this morning is John's telling of the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. It is the story of the event that is not only the, the culmination of John's gospel, as well as the other three gospels, but the very center point of history and the very center point of the biblical story in God's story of redemption. Everything from Genesis chapter 1 moves toward the cross. 
And everything after this in the uh, New Testament moves from the cross and looks back at the cross. It is the very center of history. It is the center of the story of redemption, which means that what we think about the cross of Jesus Christ and how we view it is the most important thing for any one of us in this room this morning and in the world anywhere for that matter. It is absolutely crucial. By the way, that word comes from the cross. It's absolutely crucial what we understand about the cross. How we view it and how we respond to the cross is the most important thing about us. So I feel I need to pray and again ask God's help for each one of us as we look at this text. Our Heavenly Father, we need your help. We know that your word is living and active, that it pierces to our hearts. And we have before us this morning the culmination of your plan to redeem a people for yourself and to begin to, to remake the cosmos as you intended it from the very beginning. And Lord, I pray that as we once again even as some of us have considered the cross of Christ many times, that you would, you would anew show us your glory in the shame of the cross of Christ. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we come into our text this morning, which is uh, chapter 19, verse 16 and a half, uh, remember where we are in the story of John's gospel he's t as he's telling the story. Jesus has is, is been on his way uh, to the cross. He's been delivered over to Pilate, the Roman authority, by the Jewish leadership who have wanted to put him death to death nearly from the beginning of the story as John tells it. There's been a power play going on between the two of them, and because of the Jewish leadership, they don't have the jurisdiction to put Jesus to death, so they need to get the, the, their Roman overlords uh, to sign sort of the execution papers, and they, they kind of blackmail uh, Pilate into doing this, because he doesn't really want to do it, but he's also a man of expediency, so fine. I'm going to give you what you want in order to keep the peace. Go ahead, have him crucified, and that's the last thing we read in verse 16, that they deliver him, that is Jesus, to be crucified. And then our text for this morning. So they took Jesus and they went, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side, Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write King of the Jews. Rather, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, 
They cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her in his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and we thank him for it this morning. Jesus was crucified. Three times in our text, it says that. It says it in verse 18, there they crucified him. And in verse 20, Jesus was crucified. And in verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus. Now, if you think about it, apart from the Bible, uh, crucifixion is pretty foreign to us in this room. Civilized cultures do not use crucifixion uh, in our day and age because it is the very definition of cruel and unusual punishment. It is, in fact, intended to be the most brutal, most physically agonizing method of execution that the sadistic mind of man has ever conjured up. The goal is slow, incremental death with maximum suffering and pain. And the method is to take the offender's wrists, nail them to a wooden crossbeam, and then lift him by that and attach it to a vertical post, perhaps a stripped down tree, and nail his feet to the vertical post. And then to wait. Wait for the accused and condemned to die of asphyxiation as his lungs slowly fill with liquid and eventually he doesn't have the strength to breathe anymore and literally suffocates from the inside out. Pure agony. And yet John and the writers of the other Gospels simply state that Jesus was crucified without, without dwelling on his physical suffering, which no doubt was immense. Rather, their focus is on the shame of the cross. That's John's focus in this text. The shame that Jesus suffered on the cross and what that shame accomplished. And that's what we're going to look at from this text this morning. That's, that's the big overarching idea, the banner over this sermon this morning, that the shame of the cross displays the glory of God's eternal plan accomplished by our Savior King. That's what we're going to consider this morning. The shame of the cross displays the glory of God's eternal plan accomplished by our Savior King. And how, here's how we're going to move through that. First, we're going to look at the shame of the cross 
in verses 16 through 24. Then we're going to look at what it accomplished, the mission that it accomplished in the latter half of verse 24 through the end, through verse 30. And then what are the implications for us? So the shame of the cross, the mission accomplished, and the implications for us. There is shame in nearly every phrase that begins this text. If you look at the text, verse 16, so they took Jesus. They took him because he was incarcerated. Uh, he had been condemned. He, he didn't have any rights left. He, he had no freedom. And it says they went out. That is, they went outside of the city, outside the city gate to a place where uh, was specified to crucify. Uh, in part because the law of the Jews said, and you can read this in Leviticus 24, that someone who was accursed and put to death in this way, that it happened, had to happen outside of the city gate. And so there was the shame of, of, of being cursed in terms of, by God in terms of the Jewish understanding, but also the shame of a public execution in terms of the Roman understanding and a Roman, and an understanding that the victim was being executed and killed uh, as a public example. This is what happens to you if you go against Rome. There's the shame in the fact that Jesus had to carry his own cross. The other gospel writers tell us that at some point, a guy named Joseph of Arimathea was called on to help Jesus carry his cross, probably because he had no strength left to carry it. But John just wants us to know the shame in the fact that Jesus had to carry the instrument of his own torture and death. And there's shame in the location, the place of the skull in Aramaic, Golgotha, in Latin, Calvary. Did you know you're at, at a Skull Baptist Church this morning? There's probably some good merch ideas around that. <laughs> but I bet we're not going to do it because there's shame in the idea of being crucified at a place called the place of the skull. It exudes death. There's shame in the guilt by association here. Uh, even though Pilate said three times that Jesus was not guilty, yet he is crucified between two criminals, between guys who are actually guilty. These are actually enemies of the state, probably insurrectionists, much like Barabbas, who was let go in Jesus' place. And there's shame in being a pawn in the real politics of the Jewish leadership and the Roman governor, Pilate. That little uh, incident here where Pilate has been blackmailed, basically, into putting Jesus to death. Then when, when the Jewish leaders in the previous text say, oh, you're no friend of Caesar if you let somebody who's a, who claims to be a king live. And so he puts him to death. But there's this animosity between Pilate, the Roman authority, and the Jewish authorities. And Pilate gets the last word. He has the, the inscription, the, 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 the accusation, the charge against Jesus put at the top of his cross, which was common. But his charge was that he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate's just getting under the Jews' skin by saying, this is, this is your kind of king. And so the, there's this back and forth between the two of them. And Jesus is just a pawn in their ongoing struggle. But not only is Jesus a chip in this political game between Pilate and the Jews, the Roman soldiers 
that are there carrying out this execution they see it as an opportunity to make a buck. In yet more humiliation, Jesus is completely exposed. He's naked, hanging on a, on a cross, probably just barely off the ground. The only thing covering him is his own blood. His clothes, however, are worth something to his executioners. In fact, this is a little um, sort of part of the Roman army's benefit package. Whatever you can grab to the, uh, for the accused, for the condemned, that's yours. And so four soldiers uh, divide up four articles of clothing, probably his headdress, his robe, his belt, his sandals. But there's one piece left, and it actually has a bit of value. It's, it's this woven undergarment, this tunic, and so they gamble for it. Now, at this point, John tells us something that completely changes the reader's understanding of what, what is happening in the crucifixion of Jesus. He says about the soldiers gambling for Jesus' clothes that this fulfilled the scriptures. And then he gives a specific scripture that it fulfills. It's a scripture that comes from Psalm 22. And this, in fact, is the most quoted psalm about Jesus in the New Testament. John doesn't record it, but the other gospels record that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the opening line of Psalm 22. But listen to what else Psalm 22 says. But I am a worm and not a man. This is verse 6 of Psalm 22. Scorned by mankind and despised by people, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. Is that not describing Jesus on the cross? And then the psalmist goes on to say in verse 16 of Psalm 22, dogs encompass me. In an evil, a company of evil doers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Exactly what happened to Jesus. I cannot count all my bones. The, they they stare and gloat over me. And here's the verse that was exactly fulfilled. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Exactly fulfilled in Jesus. That's amazing enough. But that this particular psalm is fulfilled is even more meaningful when you consider the writer of the psalm. The writer's King David. King David was God's choice as king. King David was promised that there would come one of his descendants, the true king of Israel, the king, the forever king, the eternal king. And in this psalm, uh, David is suffering, though he's not guilty. He's a righteous sufferer. And so we're beginning to understand who Jesus is and what his identity is by what's happening through the shame of the cross, that he is, in fact, a righteous sufferer. He is, in fact, the true descendant of David. Which brings us back to that sign that was put over the top of Jesus' cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. The politicking, and posturing going on between Pilate and the Jewish leadership was pure evil. But 
What did Pilate unwittingly do under the sovereign hand of God? He spoke and he posted for all to see the most profound truth in the universe that Jesus is king. And that is exactly what John wants his readers to see. John is saying, hey, don't get tripped up by the shame of the cross. Don't allow the shame of Jesus to obscure his true identity. Jesus of Nazareth is Messiah. Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the true descendant of David. He is God's anointed king. In fact, Jesus' humiliation is his exaltation. It is the coronation of God's king. The shame of Jesus' crucifixion, rather than concealing his royal identity, in fact, reveals it. God's anointed king is coming into his kingdom through the shame of the cross. And in doing so, he is completing the mission that his father gave him, which brings us to that mission, the mission which was accomplished. Notice how in verse 24, verse 25, moving from verse 24, the tone changes. There's a contrast there. On the one hand, the end of verse 24, the soldiers did these evil, cruel things. But on the other hand, standing near the cross of Jesus are his disciples. Five of his disciples that are mentioned. Near the cross of Jesus, we're told, stood four women, two of whom were related to Jesus physically, and all of whom were his disciples. It says his mother. It doesn't say Mary. It just says his mother and his aunt. And Mary, the wife of Clopas, uh, and Mary Magdalene, who's going to figure more prominently as this story continues in John's gospel. And there's John, the writer of this story, one of the disciples, one of the 12. He was there too. And John self-identifies as the disciple whom Jesus loved. That, that's so tender. Jesus loved all his disciples, but there was one that he had a special affinity for. There was one whose heart he was particularly knit to, and it was the writer of this gospel, John, the son of Zebedee. And in this brief scene, we begin to see the paradox of the cross. This instrument of torture and humiliation is at the very same time a place of love and compassion and generosity. Jesus honors he obeys the commandment to honor your father and mother. He honors his mother, who is no doubt widowed at this point, by appointing by John to take care of her. And he honors John by giving him the privilege and entrusting his mother to him. And John, as the author of this text, wants us to consider something else, I think. We've not seen Jesus' mother in this story since the very beginning, since John chapter 2. Remember that? That was Jesus' first miracle. I think the fact that she, he, he refers to her as woman 
reminds us of how he said to his mom in John chapter 2, woman, when she came to him with this issue of them running out of wine at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And then Jesus takes these stone jars of, full of uh, water for these Old Testament, Old Covenant purification rituals, and he, he miraculously turns it into wine. And not just any wine, but what? The best wine. And that miracle was, was hugely symbolic. First of all, it was a bit of a coming out party for Jesus that, that he has arrived on the scene. He is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of all of those things that, that those purification rites pointed forward to. That he is the king and he is here and he is coming into his kingdom. And John tells us in chapter 2 when that miracle happened. He doesn't call it a miracle. Remember what John calls miracles? He calls them signs because they're symbols. They point to something else. And he says, this sign, by doing this, Jesus manifested his glory. Remember what Jesus said about that moment when his mom came to him? He said, woman, what does this have to do with you and me? My hour has not yet come. But Jesus has just told us in the previous chapter that now his hour has come. This is his hour. And if his glory was manifested then when it wasn't his hour, what is his glory going to be like now that it is his hour? This is clearly the climax of the story. It's the climax of this gospel. It's the climax of this little story We see this in the final scene in Jesus' final words on the cross where he tells us, where Jesus says in verse 28, or where we're told that Jesus knew his his omniscience. Jesus knew that all was now finished. And so in verse 30, he cries out, it is finished. Or actually one word in the original, finished. Complete, accomplished. What? All. All of what? All that the Father sent the Son to accomplish. Jesus had come to earth on a mission. We sing about that in Christmas, right? Jesus coming to earth. The second person of the Trinity had always existed, but now he's taking on flesh. He had come to earth, and he says this all throughout John's gospel, to do the work that his father sent him into the world to accomplish. You see what's happening to Jesus, that this thing that might look like a great tragedy and is simply is certainly a, a mis, uh, mis uh, Justice and injustice in the world's eyes, the thing that, that is happening, this is exactly where John's gospel has been leading us the whole time. Jesus' death is not a surprise ending to this story. And go back to chapter one. The day that, that John the Baptist identifies Jesus, as Jesus is coming toward him, he declares, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is God's sacrificial lamb identified at the very beginning of the story. He's going to be the final lamb. All these lambs that were were sacrificed, their blood would flow to cover sin. 
We need one lamb, the lamb of God, God's lamb, who can once and for all take away human sin by paying for it in our place. And in chapter 4, John, uh, Jesus says to his disciples, after he spoke to the Samaritan woman at the well, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And then in chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. And he goes on to say in verse 17 of chapter 10, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I received from my Father. And isn't that exactly what Jesus says in verse 30? When, he, when it says that he bowed his head, he gave up his spirit. It's exactly that, that no one takes his life from him, but he, that he gives it up willingly, that he lays it down of his own accord for his sheep. And that's exactly what Caiaphas the high priest, the, the accidental prophet, had prophesied uh, earlier in chapter um, 11 and verse 50, when he said, nor do you understand that it is better that one man die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. And John tells us, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the people of God who are scattered abroad. And then in verse 12, Jesus, his hour has come and he's having this conversation with his father. And that voice is coming from heaven. And his, he's declared that his hour has come. And Jesus says, and when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to me, showing what kind of a death he would die, being lifted up on a cross. And Jesus had already indicated this at the beginning of John's gospel when he's having that, that, that nighttime conversation with Nicodemus. And he tells Nicodemus, just as the son of man, or just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the story of, 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 of death, but looking to the serpent that was lifted up on a pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And then he makes it really clear. For God so loved the world. He loved the world this way, that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus is here on the cross, living out. He's dying out, John 3.16. God so loved the world. The notice that was over him was written in three languages, Aramaic, the, the, the local regional language. Uh, it was written in Latin, the official language of the Roman Empire. And then it was written in, in Greek, the lingua franca, the, 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 the language of the marketplace, as if to say, this is the king of the Jews for all peoples. He is a universal savior, a savior for all. 
And Jesus went out carrying his cross, a wooden cross. Many have read that and observed that in Genesis chapter 22, When Abraham is told to sacrifice his son, his one and only son, Isaac had to carry the wood. He carried the wood, Isaac did, for the altar on which he was to be sacrificed. That day, God provided a substitute for Abraham's son. But this day, He did not provide a substitute for his son because his son is our substitute. He died in the place of sinful humanity. He was hung on a cross between two guilty men. It's exactly as Isaiah said it in chapter 53, verse 12. He poured out his soul to death He was numbered with the transgressors. And yet, here's the substitution, he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah was looking forward at that, to that. But listen to the Apostle Paul now looking back years later, reflecting on it. This is what he, how he puts it. This was, this was our assurance of pardon this morning from first, from second, second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. For our sake, for our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. Our sin imputed, put on Jesus. His righteousness conferred to us who believe. That's the worst trade ever. Praise God. Jesus gets our sin. He's treated like sin on the cross, including the shame. We get his righteousness through faith. That is the message of the cross, friends. That is the gospel we love. And so when Jesus has this sour wine put to his mouth before breathing his last, he's saying, it's finished. The cup is empty. I've drunk the bitter cup of God's righteous wrath toward man's sin. Not a drop is left. I have accomplished my father's mission. I have given my life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, this is why we cherish the old rugged cross. Because though it is an emblem of suffering and shame, it is the place where the dearest and best gave his life for a world of lost sinners like us. What are the implications of that? John tells us. He's been telling us his whole gospel, but he makes it super clear in the next chapter, 
in verse 20, in chapter 20, when he says, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Have you seen that the cross that way? Have you come to a place where the cross is not for you the shame, but the cross is the glory of seeing Jesus as the Savior you need? Have you come to the place where you understand that, that you have more in common and I have more in common with those criminals on either side of Jesus? and really very little in common with Jesus. But that God willingly gave his son. And Jesus gladly, forsaking the shame of the cross, dismissing it, took on the sin of all of those who would look to him in repentance and faith. If you don't know that this morning, then I can guarantee that is why you're in this room. That God 100% wants you to know that he loves you, and he gave his son in order to redeem you. Turn to him. Look to him. Repent of your sin. Embrace Jesus by faith and know eternal life that's promised to all who do. And if you have believed that Jesus is the Messiah, and if you have life in his name, then don't stop believing. Even when you stumble, even when you sin, even when you screw up and have, have no excuse and you're tempted to despair, it's happened again. In that moment, where will you find your assurance? And having prayed a prayer one time, that you were baptized, that you're a member of this church, that, that your good somehow is, outweighs your bad, that you're better than most of your neighbors, this is how the hymn writer puts it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Friends, the cross is the ground for our assurance of God's pardoning grace. When we despair, we tend to look at ourselves for confidence. I love how the old Scottish preacher put it, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. And with that assurance... We actually have the power to live in victory over sin because of the cross. Paul writes about this many places, and there's much more that could be said in this, but Romans chapter 6 is a great place that, that we've died with Christ. We will certainly be raised with him. Much more on that next week. 
But Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 20, in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. This union with Christ. We trust in him. We die to our old self. I've been crucified with Christ. And so it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And finally, there are implications for the Christian life and how we suffer in the Christian life. The cross of Jesus provides us with a paradigm for suffering in the life of the believer, namely that great blessing will come through great suffering. Carl Truman writes about this in an article entitled Luther's Theology of the Cross. Now, 500 years ago, Martin Luther was dealing with, with false teachers that he called theologians of glory, who, much like the prosperity preachers of our day, whose aim is to live your best life now, these guys had no place for suffering in the Christian life. And Luther would have none of that because it would empty the cross of its power. So listen to how, how Truman describes Luther's theology of the cross. He writes, The implications of the theology of the cross for the believer do not stop there. The cross is the paradigm for how God will deal with believers who are united to Christ by faith. In short, great blessing will come through great suffering. He goes on to say, if the cross of Christ, the most evil act in human history, can be in line with God's will and be the, the source of the decisive feat of every evil that caused it, then any other evil can also be subverted to the cause of good. More than that, if the death of Christ is mysteriously a blessing then any evil that the believer experiences can be a blessing too. Yes, the curse is reversed. Yes, blessings will flow. But who declared that these blessings have to be in accordance with the aspirations and expectations of affluent America? The lesson of the cross for Luther is that the most blessed person upon earth, Jesus Christ himself, was revealed as blessed, precisely in his suffering and death. And if that is the way God deals with his beloved son, have those who are united to him by faith any right to expect anything different. This is the paradox of the cross of Christ, that in God's economy, great blessing can come through great suffering in our lives. God will use suffering in our lives to accomplish his good purposes. The cross of Christ demonstrates it and it guarantees it. And friends, that is why we celebrate Christmas. That is why we love Advent. Because Jesus came his people to deliver. The whole reason that we celebrate Christmas, the whole reason that we celebrate the incarnation is that Jesus had to take on flesh in order to be one of us, in order to bear our sin on the cross. And praise God, he did. That's reason to celebrate. 
God gave him this mission, this, this work that the Father gave him to do. It required Jesus to take on flesh. He took on flesh, he became human, and he died for our redemption.